Hello, and uh, welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. Tonight, our topic is Art in the Afterlife. I'm Joan Kerr. We're happy to have you with us here in Merge in downtown Iowa City. And for anyone watching uh, uh, our Facebook live stream right now or listening to the podcast, uh, thank you for joining us. Our program tonight will be an exploration of the interplay between art and cultural expectations about death and the afterlife. It will also bring us face to face with an internationally renowned artist and his extraordinary creations, one of which you see just next to us here. Uh, fantasy coffins is the name we're using. I understand that our guest sometimes likes to use design coffins as the term, but we'll learn all about them in our program tonight. So joining us are Eric Gajetianang, an artist from Ghana in West Africa, widely known for his fantasy coffins. And as I've just mentioned, uh, what you see here is a fantasy coffin that has been brought for your enjoyment tonight, and we'll learn about its final destination, perhaps, uh, from Eric. Eric has spent this semester at the University of Iowa as an artist in residence. And just next to me is Corey Gundlach, the curator of the arts of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas at the University of Iowa Museum of Art. Thank you, Corey. And thank, thank you. you, Eric. Uh, Corey, you're sort of responsible for um, bringing Eric to our campus. You and Isabel Barbusa, Christopher Roy on our campus also have been working with Eric this semester. Um, tell us a little bit about um, not only Eric's appearance, but, but really the larger um, uh, collection of African art and beautiful artifacts that you have at the um, museum. Sure. Um, well, I think I'd like to, to preface that um, introduction to the museum collection by saying that the original impetus for working with Eric began with a commission opportunity in building the museum collection. And in looking at the collection, which is extraordinary and, and world-class in terms of um, what people recognize in terms of quality and historical significance, um, in the Stanley collection in particular, um, there are no fantasy coffins. And so in seeing that absence, I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to add them to the collection. Um, and to create a dialogue with um, the Stanley Collection in particular, which is primarily traditional in terms of style, um, with objects from the late 19th and early 20th century, um, to bring in um, art from Africa that um, generally began in the mid-20th century. And um, my interest in particular was to bring in a young artist that's making these things today that could be a part of the project, and um, to have his voice as, as part of this, mm -hmm. this general um, opportunity. So. So with that, in terms of its relationship to the museum collection, um, I'd like to start with an image of, of the installation of Eric's work, which you see on the screen now, um, up through this Sunday. Um, so there are um, six of Eric's um, fantasy coffins, um, commonly what people use to refer to them, as you mentioned. Um, and so again, in, in creating this dialogue between the Stanley collection and Eric's work, um, I've emphasized a sort of qualitative reference with Eric's work as contemporary. It's, it's the first sentence that you read when you come into the exhibition space. And so I'd like to elaborate on that today in terms of what that means with Eric's work. Um, the, the fact is um, the University of Iowa Museum of Art hasn't hosted a, an exhibition of contemporary African art since 1996. And um, as you see here, um, that was an exhibition of paintings by Tenda Luimba, a Taba, um, painter, and so the fact is there is no consensus on exactly what this means to be contemporary. And so in looking at Eric's work today, I can sort of provide my understanding and, and um, my interests in, in using this word with respect to Eric's work. 
It just so happens that the last exhibition of contemporary African art in 1996 featured an image of Mami Wata, which is in um, the current exhibition of Eric's work, and it also featured a depiction of coffin makers. So um, there's a bit of irony there that was um, not intentional, but um, it, it does speak to the, the nature of Mami Wata as a contemporary um, image in African art, mm -hmm. um, and then also um, coffin making um, ap appear to be consistent subjects for, for contemporary African art. So in explaining this, um, I have a few um, approaches I'd like to discuss, and the first of which is, um, is Eric a contemporary African artist because of the fact that he has three workshops, two of which are in Ghana, one of which is in the US, and as we see here, um, those workshops are at Teshi, um, his hometown, yeah. another in Aratientem near Kumasi, and in Madison, where you are yeah. currently. Um, is it the fact that he participates in artist residencies around the world, some of which you see here at Milan, um, in Denmark, um, in, in Madison, and here at Italy, Iowa. yeah. So um, definitely a global presence for, for Eric. And, also the fact that his own grandfather is widely recognized as the inventor of this form, if not um, the leader. Um, and that began with a major exhibition at Paris in 1989, um, Magicien de la Terre. And you see here an installation of Eric's grandfather's work um, lined up alongside other widely recognized contemporary artists such as Oldenburg, um, Richard Long, etc. So it was a, a definitely a, a new way to look at these objects alongside contemporary artists from around the world. Um, another thing that uh, is very interesting about Eric's work in terms of a contemporary perspective is its multiple functions. And here we see um, images of fantasy coffins and their artistic precedents in multiple contexts. In the upper right, you see a chief um, in a palanquin that um, is the artistic source for um, fantasy coffins as you see them today. Directly beneath that, you see the same motif, the eagle, um, in a coffin that Eric created for uh, the Chazen Museum of Art at yeah. Madison. And then immediately beside it, um, one of Eric's coffins in an actual burial during a funeral. So are there, there are multiple functions for these objects, which um, in fact is commonplace for African art in general. So it's not something that we can say about his work that qualifies it as contemporary. Um, in relation to the Stanley Collection in particular, the fact that these objects historically began as coffins for burials um, fits quite well with the fact that many of the objects in the Stanley Collection have to do with concepts of the afterlife, um, such as these two objects here from the Stanley Collection, a, a calm mask on the far right, um, worn by members of um, a royal um, kingdom of calm in Cameroon, worn during funerals, and beside it, a uh, Femba figure from the Democratic Republic of Congo placed on the grave of the deceased. So there's definitely um, a shared focus on interests in the afterlife yeah. and funerals, and also here in particular, um, ideas about status and class. Um, these two objects from the Stanley Collection are specific to royalty. And this shoe coffin created by Eric has specifically to do with, um, frankly, class and personal aspirations that Eric's discussed in terms of um, things he aspires to. Um, from a sort of functionalist perspective, this type of object might be designed for a shoemaker, a cobbler, 
um, but as an art object for Eric. Yeah. Um, he has talked about it as a sort of um, icon of aspiration in terms of his own personal goals, in terms of style and class and such. And in that respect, it relates to other objects in the Stanley Collection that have nothing to do with the afterlife, but objects that are particularly destined for a European audience or, or any sort of patrons outside of Africa. And so these objects you see here uh, were created in the late 19th, early 20th century by artists in um, Central Africa for European patrons, or in other words, white people like me, not from Africa. And, and the, the exhibition we have now, um, it's important to recognize that these objects weren't made for funerals, they were made for an art museum. These objects made um, by artists in Central Africa were made for European patrons. And so there's another interesting relationship here in terms of um, art for the afterlife and art for um, people outside of Africa to demonstrate status and class. Um, one of Eric's own personal artistic aspirations with this shoe coffin in particular. Now with respect to Eric's personal style, um, I think there have been uh, cases in which people try to make an argument that contemporary African art conforms to a particular style. And I don't necessarily espouse that idea, but in looking closely at Eric's personal style, um, it is a fact that more recently he's begun to use um, reflected light in his coffin. So in this image we see here, his pepper coffin, he's actually painted areas of reflected light rather than allowing spotlights within the exhibition spaces to reveal that naturally. It's something he's adding to the object. And that's exclusive to Eric's work in particular. It's something that I haven't seen among other coffin makers in Ghana. And so what you see here is a before and after when I first started working with Eric. Um, in the beginning of this year, you see the, 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 the former state of the pepper coffin below and above its present state with reflected light. So that's a particular stylistic characteristic of, of Eric's work that's important to recognize. Also, his realism and his departures from it. Here we have Nea Obedi Ada, or in other words, even the one who worked for it is gone, referring to his, his grandfather, Kane Kwe, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But this, this coffin is obviously based on Ghana Airways, yeah. this airplane. And um, while we look at these objects and we can tell this is definitely an airplane, um, with, with closer scrutiny, I think you can see things like the fact that, th that Eric's airplane coffin has five turbine engines which has no counterpart in reality. So that type of fictitious yeah. departure yeah. from realism, I, I find so much joy in, because these are creative objects yeah. created by this artist that's not merely representing reality surrounding him, but, but shaping it in new ways. Um, and with the inclusion of text on that um, is an explicit reference to the ga term for these objects, abebu adikai. Um, receptacles of Proverbs. And so here you see a proverb um, in particular uh, reference to his father, that you, his grandfather, excuse me, Kane Kwai. And so there's also um, a personal relationship here with his grandfather's innovation in using this motif back in 1951 for his grandmother. And then also um, his position in relation to his family currently in Ghana at the workshop in Teshi and changes that have happened recently yep. in terms of where um, Eric's work is going, <laughs> where his family's work is going. Um, it's an it's incredibly um, important piece for Eric and a very successful object. Um, I think 
It's, it's also important to recognize the contemporary nature of Eric's work in terms of subject matter. His recent work has increasingly focused on ecological crisis in terms of dwindling populations among things such as insects. And so this bumblebee um, points directly to that in the fact that the US Department of Fisheries and Wildlife Services have designated the rusty-backed bumblebee, the rusty-patched bumblebee, excuse me, as an endangered species. And so Eric's calling attention to these sort of ecological, ecological, ecological issues, excuse me, is definitely part of a broader um, trend among artists, um, not only in Africa, but, but contemporary artists. And that definitely positions him in that, um, that practice. And he's been doing this for a while. And as you can see here, um, a fish that he created in Philadelphia, yeah. commenting on plastic pollution um, and its effect on um, fish belongs into a, a broader context of contemporary African artists commenting on um, ecology and pollution. And you see here on the, the, the right, Bright Uguchuku Eke in V.A. Diba in an installation, Environment and Object, that was held at the Tang Museum at Skidmore College, um, focused exclusively on ecological crisis among a number of contemporary African artists. And Eric is a part of that, that interest. In addition to ecological crisis, I think that Eric's work also speaks to issues of gun violence and racial inequality, not only in America, but here beside a work by Doug, um, Sokari Douglas Camp, commenting on violence in the Niger Delta in Nigeria, related specifically to um, oil um, exploitation and the sort of um, violence and tension caused by that exploitation of natural resources, whereas Eric's gun on, on the right is speaking um, directly to um, violence in, in Madison and racial inequality and tension. And um, ecologies too, yeah. Yes, and, and specifically his use of colors in black and white speaking to racial tension in America, that sort of racial politics is very much a, a contemporary concern for Eric and other artists. Going back to um, our African collection at the University of Iowa Museum of Art, we do have a small number of contemporary works here on the far right work by uh, William Kentridge, um, Ellen Atsui, and uh, Mansour Cease. Um, again, these issues of, of looking at basically colonial encounter, specifically with William Kentridge and representing um, a general um, with this particularly Prussian or um, German-style high collar and monocle. Um, and it is a fact that uh, during World War I, over 75,000 Namibians were massacred by, by Germans. And so that sort of colonial history and trauma and racial tension um, in, in contemporary African art is something that Eric's work um, speaks to. Ellen Atsui's work in terms of carving up the nations of Africa during the colonial period, and Mansour Cisse's um, representation of new forms of currency featuring portraits of Leopold Senghor, um, who was very interested in developing a sort of pan-African identity um, resisting European um, oppression of, of African peoples. So, so it does fit within a, a number of works currently within the museum collection such as these. But it's also important to recognize that this isn't something that can be cordoned off in terms of style. So what I brought in here are examples of Bogolan cloth. Um, on the upper right, an example from the Met from the late 19th and early 20th century. And directly beneath it, 
um, a hunter's tunic in our museum collection that maintains the, the same style but was created um, in the early part of the 21st century. And immediately beside it, um, a work by uh, Abamana artists using the same technique in the late 20th century. So there's an overlap between style and conceptions of contemporary African art that you see um, in, in these examples. And, and moving ahead with um, Eric's Mami Watsa coffin, um, we do have an example of a Mami Watsa in the collection. And so Eric's work does speak to this broader context of cultural exchange and the fact that the spirit is um, believed to be from overseas. Um, so again, this, this idea of cultural exchange that already exists in the museum collection, Eric, is, is a, very much a part of that. Well, I think we should just uh, uh, hear a little bit from, sure, sure. from Eric, too. Yeah. Uh, he's seen some of this. Uh, of course, he's seen all of the presentation you've just made and has been here on campus for this semester. So I'm sure you've seen a, a good number of the uh, elements of the Stanley Collection here. But you've also been kind enough to bring one of your own beautiful creations for us to look at here in the room this afternoon. So um, thank you, Corey, for giving us the, the background and some context for this. Um, uh, why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about what this fantasy coffin, which to me looks like a fish, someone told me was a red snapper. Um, what was this design all about? Was it commissioned or was it something that you just decided to make on your own? I would say, I mean, we both decided on that. Um, initially, we had plans of building something that would represent like Iowa. So we thought of um, John Deary, like mm -hmm. a tractor. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, a notebook because of, you know, the college. And um, Carly wrote back, uh, Curry wrote back to me and he was like, um, maybe we should, you know, <laughs> we should allow you to, you know, like decide something. So I got back to him and, you know, we talked about um, a fish, you know, something that represents where I'm coming from. And the fish is something, one of the coffins that is commonly used in the, um, in the southern part of Ghana. Mm -hmm. So I talked to him about it, and he was actually OK about it. So mm -hmm. we made that. And then the second piece, which was the firefly, I gave him the story of while I was growing um, um, in Accra, Teshin, and um, how we used to you know, like play with all those insects and stuff. And you know, all of a sudden, everything has disappeared. And that's true, I mean, um, urban, um, um, yeah. um, how do you call it, globalization and mm -hmm. stuff. So mm -hmm. I, I mean, I was actually worried about that. And I did, you know, talk to him about it. Mm -hmm. So I actually made the suggestion of building these two coffins. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And these will remain here at the University of Iowa? Yes, yeah. actually, um, mm -hmm. it, it's the, the plane and the, the and fish. The, the fish. Plane yeah. and the, the fish, fish. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So um, tell us about the process a little bit. I, we're going to learn a little, a little also from a sculpture professor, Isabel Barbusa, mm -hmm. and you were working with her and her students this semester. So we'll hear a little bit about how all that went in the second segment. But when you conceive something like this, uh -huh. what, what's the process for turning it into what we see? I mean, I basically, you know, came in with my wood, I mean, the boards, um, an inch thick and um, um, a foot wide, and then um, eight feet long. So 
I just started cutting, you know. So I basically worked with only hand tools while I was working. Hand tools? Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And it actually took me like two to three weeks to build this. My goodness. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And so if, if this were to be used in a funeral in Ghana, mm -hmm. um, someone would have presumably requested this from your shop and... Yeah. yeah. So the family would come and, you know, um, as soon as the person passes away, um, before, I mean, they have the chances of choosing what they want. They would say, oh, we want a fish. <laughs> but this time when they come, I would give them many options. And, you know, that also puts me in a different angle to build more more of a different mm -hmm. species and stuff. So they would tell me the guy is a fisherman. So what I'm going to ask them is um, what species of fish is he fond of catching? Or where does he, does his, uh, does he do his fishing? In the lakes or in the on the ocean or something. So through that, I would build something that represents him. Sure. Yeah. So I understand, and Corey mentioned this also, you grew up around this kind of creation because yeah. your grandfather was very famous for yeah. making these. And, and now you have these three workshops and you employ a number of people in Ghana and I suspect also in the United States creating these things. Um, I, I think for many of us in America, this is just an amazing and wonderful concept. I, I think that it was certainly new to me when I learned about these. And um, um, do you find us in this country sort of very um, lacking in creativity when it comes to the way we send ourselves off into the next space? No. I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. So um, this is actually a good question. I mean, um, this is something which was found only among the guns. And as time goes on, it started to grow up among, you know, the, I mean, it grew up in Ghana. So we had the airways and the other tribes, you know, becoming part of it. And that was one reason I moved to um, build my new shop in Kumasi, which makes it easier for them to, you know, transport mm -hmm. it to their various mm -hmm. home. Um, I think we, I mean, in Ghana, let's say the southern part of Ghana, we celebrate our, I mean, um, um, our deceased relatives. Mm -hmm. So it's a form of giving them, you know. So let's, I, I, what I would say is um, once you've been taken very good care of, I mean, through the profession of your parents, the only way you could, you know, celebrate them is giving them a befitting burial. Mm -hmm. And part of that is the coffin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so these these coffins, uh, I've seen some of the uh, uh, city demonstrations or celebrations that would be held with people gathering around in the coffin, carried through the town and so yeah. on. Um, but then it is actually buried. It disappears. Yeah. And also the reason why you see people, you know, carrying that and, you know, celebrating mm -hmm. and dancing and stuff is because most of the people that are being buried in these design coffins are people who have lived I mean, a life well lived. Mm -hmm. So I would say somebody who is like um, 50 and above. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Um, so now when you're working um, both as a coffin maker for the people who have traditionally used these and then also as an artist who's very much in demand both for residencies and then for, for works that are bought by galleries and individuals and so on. Um, is, there, is there something in your um, work on the coffin or your conception of the piece, is there something that's different in, with those two um, end, end results, one going to be an individual person's coffin and the other going to 
essentially be an, an art piece that will be viewed in a gallery? Yeah. Um, so working back home in Ghana, when somebody, I mean, a customer arrives and commission a coffin, first of all, I, I do, you know, like buy a bottle of schnapp and, you know, I perform <laughs> the rites that has to be done. Mm -hmm. um, when I come here, I sort of like to work with students because that's the only way I also get to learn from them. Mm -hmm. So it's like um, a 50-50 thing. Mm -hmm. So my goal here in the United States is mostly to work with students. Yeah. 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 And do you live here um, throughout the academic year and then you return to Ghana in the summer or... I mean, I would say I live part in the United States yeah. and then part of my life in Ghana. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's going to be like Ghana and, the, yeah. and Madison. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, can you tell us anything in particular about the, about the fish that we have here? So, um, I mean, I have my type of fish I built. And um, Corey sent me a photo because um, I talked to him about the fish. And he saw one from Sylvia. But he wanted something very different from what I have already done. So mm -hmm. that was why actually this took like took me like three weeks. <laughs> because I I really have to, you know, take my time and, you know. And also with the finishing um the the painting, this is a new paint I, I'm kind of still learning on how mm -hmm. to use use it. So um I have to do repeat the process, uh, the painting process, for like um, four or five times mm -hmm. before putting the final details. And so Corey was explaining that in the chili pepper, uh, you added a certain kind of sheen to certain areas. Have you done that also on this fish? Um, because it is very reflective, but it's also right under a light, so I can't. This uh, is not so reflective, yeah. <laughs> but with something like the fish, it's like uh, the chili. It's a flat color, mm -hmm. so. I just don't want to make it the flat color. I want to put an effect to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And could you tell us, um, give us four or five different versions of your most popular sort of standard coffin options for someone who comes to your shop back in Ghana? <laughs> <laughs> I would say um, the fish. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, um, and the cocoa pot, because um, sometimes, I mean, we're still struggling with Ivory Coast leading producers of cocoa. Mm -hmm. So, and we have a lot of cocoa farmers, so um, that's one coffin that actually goes a lot. Um, we have um, the mummy truck, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we have a lot of, you know, um, a, a lot of people before the before 1992 they used to go on the apprenticeship to learn how to drive oh. so that's like a profession that was mm -hmm. existing but now it's it's a little there i mean it's only a few people so we have the truck mm -hmm. um what the bible yeah mm -hmm. so it's also another thing um when i started um in 2005 it wasn't so common because the Christians believe being buried in a design coffin, it's against their religion no, because it goes with, you know, pouring of libation, sacrifices of animals and stuff. Mm. So they actually didn't like the idea. Mm. But in recent time, I mean, I, I would say in a year I built like between 15 to 20 Bibles. Really? Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow. 
Um, so I know we'll have a chance to talk to you again in one of our later segments, but I think we've sort of come to the end of this first segment, so yeah. I want to say thank you very much, Corey and yeah. uh, Eric. And uh, in this next segment, we're going to learn a little bit about concepts of the afterlife in various parts of Africa, and we'll hear about how University of Iowa sculpture students worked alongside Eric uh, for this past semester, understanding some of his techniques and mm -hmm. applying them to their own work. Um, if you would like to hear this program later, all programs are available as audio podcasts on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. So I'm Joan Kerr, and for UI International Programs, thanks very much for joining us. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in Iowa City. Our topic tonight is Art and the Afterlife. Uh, the University of Iowa Museum of Art and our School of Art and Art History have been engaged in a rich collaboration this fall on a semester-long project uh, during which African artist Eric Ajeti Anang has been on campus uh, creating original sculptures that will remain in the UI collection and teaching UI sculpture students about his techniques and aesthetic philosophies. Uh, we're happy to be joined in this segment by two members of the faculty of the School of Art and Art History, Christopher Roy and Isabel Parbusa. Thank you for being here. Uh, Chris, I think I'll start with you. Uh, you're a professor and the Elizabeth M. Stanley Faculty Fellow of African Art History, and you have the closest longtime acquaintance with the extensive African art collection here at the University of Iowa. So obviously, while we're centering our conversation on this lovely work by Eric and um, some other contemporary uh, art, I'd like to take a step back and ask you to give us a little better understanding about the Stanley collection itself and why it's important to the University of Iowa. Good. Um, I came here in 1978 because uh, Max and Betty Stanley had promised uh, their African art collection to the university. And um, Sandy Boyd, the president at the time, called the chair of the department, Tomasini, and asked if that would be helpful. And Tomasini said, it will be totally worthless unless we hire someone to teach African art. And so I came here and have been here now for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I love it because we have the best collection of African art of any college in America right up with UCLA and Indiana. UCLA and Indiana have very good collections, and so mm -hmm. do we. Um, other colleges, not so much. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I'm glad you asked the question now because, of course, Dick and Mary Jo Stanley um, gave $10 million to uh, go towards the construction of the new art museum, right. which will be called the University of Iowa Stanley Museum of Art. Mm -hmm. And I'm very happy and proud with yeah. that. And I'm also happy and proud that in the first 10 years of my career here, um, I worked hand in hand with the Stanleys, picking out pieces that they were to buy mm. um, that have come to the museum since. So all of those objects that Corey showed are objects that the Stanleys acquired um, in the years after 1978. So we here at Iowa should be very proud of that collection. And of course, the collection being here means that interest by students is enormous here. Um, our classes are astronomically big, and uh, that is important. In a state like Iowa, when I came, uh, Iowa was a very white state, and uh, happily, um, it is getting much more interesting uh, ethnically, much more diverse. So the interest is increasing um, as time goes by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, the African art collection that um, 
you and the Stanleys worked to amass. It was basically 19th century pieces or early 20th century. Was there, um, were you looking just for interesting pieces that would make for a great collection or you, were you looking to, to uh, hit on certain themes, certain kinds of pieces? Mostly it was looking for good pieces that would mm -hmm. make a good collection. Mm -hmm. Almost everything you see anywhere in the world about Africa, with very few exceptions, is either 19th or 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, I dare say probably the majority of pieces in our collection here are early 20th century, but there's some that are late 19th. You don't get much older than that simply because of the character of the climate in Africa mm -hmm. and the kinds of materials that the objects are made of. There are important exceptions, though. The, the Ife bronzes date back to the 13th century, mm -hmm. and uh, there are a lot of other objects in durable materials, like as in our collection, the Benin bronzes, that date back um, at least to the middle of the 19th century and, and perhaps earlier than that. Uh, but generally speaking, African art in collections outside Africa doesn't have quite the age that art from other cultures does. Mm -hmm. Well, so this, this um, major project that Corey and you and others have been working on is called Art in the Afterlife. And of course, you spent most of your life um, thinking afterlife. about Africa in the afterlife, right? <laughs> but doing a lot of work and research in Africa. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about general conceptions of the after, afterlife among the societies you uh, studied. And, I'd love and to. You know. It's important that people understand that there's a big difference between burials and funerals and funerals and memorial services. In almost all of Africa, with the exception of Ghana and a couple of other countries, when a person dies, they have to be buried immediately. Um, otherwise, things get extremely nasty. Mm -hmm. And if you're in rural villages where I work, in Burkina Faso or countries like Mali or, or northern Nigeria, the burial is almost instant, uh, certainly before three days have passed. And then they hold a funeral, and that can be anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of months, or even sometimes in rare cases, a couple of years after the person died, which makes it much more like a memorial service than it is like the funerals that we have in our own culture. So um, when the person's buried, uh, art objects come out to assure the ancestors that the person who's passed away was a respected member of the community. But then a memorial service is held where people drink a lot, eat a lot, have a lot of fun, dance a lot, offer prayers to the spirits of the ancestors to ask them what, to watch over the community and the family. And um, th those are scheduled when people have enough food and drink to celebrate properly. So there was a huge drought in West Africa from 1971 to 76, and lots and lots of funerals were postponed because they didn't have the resources to celebrate properly. And then um, having, Nora and I were in the Peace Corps from 70 to 72, and then in 76 we returned. That was the first good crop they'd had, so um, there were hundreds of funerals all over mm. Burkina Faso um, uh, that year. So um, uh, I think I must have gone to 30 or 40 funerals um, in villages within a 20-kilometer radius of the town where we lived um, just in that winter from 70, mm -hmm. 76 to 77. Mm -hmm. You wanted to show us a few images, I think. Why not? Yeah. So um, <laughs> I just spent 16 weeks explaining art in the afterlife to 250 undergraduates. <laughs> so I'll do it for this group in yeah. 10 minutes. Yeah, good. Sounds good. 
<laughs> this is the kind of funeral, in fact, that is a funeral that I attended. And here you can see the masks. Do you see there, there's a, there are two masks right in the middle with the baobab tree in the background? And they're making a circuit of the dead man's house. Um, they go around it three times because three is the sacred number for men. And uh, if it had been a woman, they'd go around four times. And this is to free the spirit of the deceased person to leave the community of the living and start its long journey to the land of the ancestors. And these, these are the Mosi people of Burkina Faso, and they have a very clearly defined idea or understanding of where the land of the ancestors is. It's in a cavern above a village called Pilimpiku, which means butterflies, which is about halfway between that village and the capital city, Ouagadougou. And if you go on market day, when the ancestor spirits are holding market day, you can listen at the entrance to the cave and hear the drums and the cabarets as the ancestors uh, celebrate market day drinking a lot of millet beer. Um, this was a photo. The history of interest and study of, of art in Burkina Faso goes way back. This is a photo taken by the great German explorer uh, Leo Frobenius in 1907. So you're seeing the very same kinds of masks you saw on this slide in 1977. You see in this mask, it's actually in, a, yes, um, in, in, in 1907. Um, and here, in the same village, you see two masks performing in front of the House of the Dead Men. One of the key moments in the funeral is when, if it's a man, um, all of his male friends break all of his weapons and, and bows and arrows and spears and shotguns over the threshold of his door and destroy them all, which breaks the tie between the spirit of the dead and the world of the living so he can begin his journey to the cave, to the land of ancestors. If a woman has died, they break all of her cooking pots and cooking utensils, not because they didn't like her, but because that frees the spirit to begin that long uh, journey. In Ghana, in Kumasi, um, the Gong make beautiful coffins like this, but other people in Ghana uh, celebrate in other ways. Um, pretty much everybody in the Akan world uh, uses stools like the one you see here men and women alike, and the stools are very personal. Uh, they belong to just one individual, and that individual uses them um, all of his or her life. Um, when that person dies, the stool is blackened. If that person has been successful, uh, has achieved important things, has contributed to the life of the family and the uh, uh, prosperity of the family, they blacken the stool um, with a black pigment mix mixed with palm oil and place it on a shrine where offerings and prayers can be offered through the stool to the spirit of the dead person to maintain the line of communication uh, to the dead person. This, this stool is in the National Museum of African Art in Washington, DC. Um, this is Sir Osai Agiman Prempe II, who was the Asantehini um, in Ghana when I was in graduate school. He died in 1971, and his funeral was celebrated. You see him seated on his Asapim chair is thrown wearing kente cloth. And uh, when he died, his stool was paraded through the community, um, still in the white condition that it had been in when he was still alive. But it was then taken to the ancestral shrine and blackened uh, and placed, uh, uh, tipped over on its side uh, in the shrine, just as you see here. These are the stools that belonged to all of the Asantehini, all of the kings of the Asante, uh, going back to at least the beginning of the 18th century, probably before that. And each of those stools is a direct line to the spirit of the deceased king. And each of the stools has an attendant who is responsible for its upkeep, who stands behind him, and a bowl or a, a jar or a mug in front. 
in which um, the Asante and other Akan peoples, bless their souls, like to pour uh, large quantities of Dutch gin or schnapps called Hinever, um, which is not only found delicious by the ancestors, but delicious by the living as well. <laughs> so that's poured. However, um, a tradition that I find particularly fascinating and my students love, and which I think we should establish or revive here um, in the state of Iowa, is the use of figures like this by the um, uh, uh, Wende people who live at the mouth of the Congo River who make these beautiful coffins, that's a coffin right there, that are made of cloth. What happens when an important man dies, um, they gather all of his wives together and they, the wives are seated around the walls of a, of a small building made of thatch and they bring the dead man's body in and put it over a low fire and they smoke it. Uh, for days and days and days until it's very nice and dry, just like really good beef jerky. And uh, as the bodily, bodily fats um, drip out of it into the fire, uh, great clouds of smoke billow up, and the wives pass out. Uh, they faint from lack of oxygen and the heat and the stress, and uh, people, their sons-in-law and sons and daughters, drag them out of the hut, and pour a bucket of cold water over their face to revive them and then drag them back into the hut so that they can finish up the desiccation of the dead person's body. And then all of the guests at the funeral come and wrap the body in yards and yards and yards and yards and miles and miles and miles of red cloth until the dried out beef jerky body is wrapped up in a coffin that looks just like the dead man. And the head is a portrait of the dead man. So an artist is commissioned to fashion the head with all of the indications of status and prestige and all of the marks, including on the, on the, on the stomach, you see these white chalk marks, which in, this, in, this, in the Caribbean world in southern United States are called veve. And these are symbols um, in the religious beliefs of the people of the kingdom of the Congo and represent all sorts of ideas about uh, death and the afterlife. Uh, and the fact that when people die, their spirits go below the surface of the lakes and ponds and rivers, which are reflective, and so they are represented by mirrors. So here you see one of these enormous coffins that weigh four or 500 pounds. Here is a smaller one with just some long bones and a skull inside. That's, this is my next goal, actually. Um, there are a lot of things the Stanleys would not purchase because I made the mistake of telling them what was inside. And uh, so um, my goal now is to raise the money um, to acquire one of these objects uh, for our collection here at the University of Iowa. And this is a large one. This one is 10 feet tall and weighs like 400 pounds. Most of these are in museum collections in Sweden because um, during the middle 19th, the middle 20th century, all the missionaries in the area were Swedish. So this is in a collection in Stockholm. And here you see one of these great coffins being dragged through the street on its way to the grave graveyard where it will be buried just like this fish, uh, buried standing upright with its head uh, just below the surface of the ground. I think we should do that here at Iowa. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Uh, can Christmas. you imagine the students going up to Pentecost to attend <laughs> Professor Roy's funeral up there, and there's this huge mass of red clay? I mean, red cloth, rather? Cloth. I think that would be a stitch. <laughs> or Jay Semmel. Thank you. 
Thank you. I, um, we're going to switch to Isabel Barbusa, who's a professor of sculpture at the University of Iowa, who has been involved in this project, working with Eric and uh, with Chris and with Corey uh, throughout this semester. And uh, she also has a few um, pictures of the work that her students were doing uh, this semester. So tell us how this all went. Um, it, it, it was a, an incredible experience and a, a pleasure to work with Eric. Um, I think when he was talking about, you know, how he works and all that, and he said he brought the wood and his hand tools <laughs> uh, summarizes it all. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting that we're here at Merge where technology really drives, you know, the future and the yeah. present in a way. And um, the, what the, the way we approach working with Eric um, he, he's a wonderful, I mean, he, through stories, he yeah. kind of, you know, um, introduces us to the whole idea of, you know, death and, and the coffins and so forth. And um, something that he said, and I mentioned this because it was part of one of my students' work, um, that for him it's, it's as, you know, important, the, you know, to make the coffee and so forth, but also the stories from the families. Yeah. And this idea of, you know, having a whole, um, uh, talking to people and talking to the family of the disease and so forth. So we were very interested in that. And so the assignment was basically to think about, you know, transitions, to think about death perhaps in, in everywhere. But um, this idea of what is a coffin, this idea of um, what's a vessel and what's carried inside um, the coffin, because we see the fish, but the inside, <laughs> uh, he, um, Eric has sewn the inside, you know, oh. using a beautiful fabric. And so we were able to see the entire process in terms of designing, mm. you know, what kind of fabric who was going to use it. it so it, it was really an amazing experience. Oh, we have here. Mm -hmm. um, the image. So, um, um, so he basically, as, and I think it's very, very important, and, and what a wonderful um, moment for our students to see that you know the, what you can accomplish with hand tools and with really thinking about. And we have been talking about this a lot with the the uh, three dimensional intelligence, like rather than, than relying on an AutoCAD or or you know a file, it's like you imagine in space what a piece is going to look like. And I think Eric, you know, it's it's amazing in that. I don't know if I have that image. So that is probably. Um, um, I think that was our, our first time meeting with Eric at the museum. We went to see what he was working on, and so the class is there, and we are observing. Um, no, that's Jennifer's piece. I believe Jennifer is here, one of the students. Um, and so, um, <coughs> so Jennifer, a grad student, Vess, a grad student in uh, the painting program, but taking sculpture uh, because you know we offer students the opportunity to to explore other areas aside from their major area. She um, wanted to make a boat. And before coming to the idea of making a boat, he was already making pieces made out of nylon dipped in wax that they had an incredible texture and she wanted to cover the interior uh, of her vessel with uh, those forms, of, so that's why I'm mentioning the interior of the of the coffins because the interior is as important as the exterior. So uh, here, let's see. Here we we go, and this is a perfect example of of how to calculate that 
point. It was without, um, I mean, it was purely by just cutting the wood in space and putting it together using hand tools. So it was uh, an amazing, see, there we go. <clears throat> so this is in our shop at the School of Art and Art History. Um, we met uh, several times with Eric, and I think what, what we, I, we take away from that experience was not only um, the, the techniques that we learn, but the, the conversations, his take on being an artist and what does it mean to be an artist in the world, um, the path that you might want to take in terms of art, uh, the importance of having a global vision um, in, in art, in making. So um, here we are uh, putting the pieces together and Jennifer did have, um, you know, experience in, in working in sculpture, but she completely embraced um, the, the making of the boat. That's finished and that's the bottom of the piece. And remember, she wanted to make a boat. And so the, the idea of the, because it was a site-specific piece, so meaning that she was responding to the site, to where this piece was going to be. And if you know the School of Art and Art History, we have a pond. And so the idea was to have this piece float in the water. And what's inside, I put a picture, I'm sorry, but what's inside, so it's covered by, an, by um, a mesh. So inside she put the, the pieces that she was working previously you know, these um, incredible, very, you know, textured pieces of the fabric, dipping wax and adding certain different shapes. So then we went to the to the pond and it floated. <laughs> and it was a beautiful afternoon for all of us because what happens is you stop thinking about the piece as a piece of art and it's more about the experience that we were all having, uh, having during that time of, you know, the boat going and the light. It was at 1.30, so the lighting was perfect. Mm -hmm. And um, so anyway, um, that was a wonderful, successful piece. Um, it's posted on Facebook and Instagram and the School of Art and Art History, and I think I just post uh, uh, some images in World Canvas. And um, so anyway, it, it, it's, it's not only, I mean, the class was not about making a coffin. It was learning from Eric. It was learning about what, what a coffin is, what mm -hmm. does it mean, mm -hmm. all the amazing um, work that goes into yeah. making something like that because remember yeah. there is wood and so we were you know saying how do you get the very so you know, uh, soft yeah. surface you know because we saw the ribs mm -hmm. we saw how it was work and then the painting and, so, and then the inside the interior so um, I don't have the images here but I have other students who approach the work in the death of the prairie in terms of Iowa being, you know, one of you know the, the state that is more more turnaround. Um, then I had a student who worked with uh, doors, real doors that she bought, and she put all the doors standing, freestanding, on the little amphitheater by the um, IMU. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that, that's another site specific. And so she was thinking in terms of passage. You know, the, the going from one side to the other, and it was a very lovely piece too. So, anyway, it it was um it was um and I, I mean what we take out of our experience with Eric, it's 
Yeah. It's uh, the f- everything, but but I mean, this idea that you can do things with that very, you know, with hand tools. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, that's so amazing to me. I mean, when, when you look at this piece we have here in the room, and it's so soft and so smooth, you know, you might imagine that it has a plaster covering or something underneath, but this is all just the wood that you were working with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, incredible. So uh, your students were happy with this experience oh, and so. what they what came out of it. Janice <laughs> oh, did the boat. Congratulations yes. on the boat. Yeah, it's yeah, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, wonderful. Well, uh, so I guess uh, I'll just thank you both for being here. This was really, really interesting. And I'm, I'm so pleased you could share some of the pieces. Chris. Thank you, Joan. And thanks to international yeah. programs oh, and yeah. Yeah. to Corey yeah. and the museum and everybody else yeah. involved yeah. for giving us this chance. Oh, you're yeah. welcome. And, and I should actually mention um, that international programs helped sponsor Eric's visit here with a, with a major project award because the, um, it was such a persuasive application. How could we refuse? And now to have you all here today is really great. The Stanley so family has been providing huge amounts of money every year for the last 40 years yeah. to study Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Christopher Roy and Isabel Barbusa, thank you so much. Appreciate your being here. And uh, everyone else, please stay with us in this next segment. We'll hear from Sylvia Forney and once again from Eric Ajete Anang. Thank you. Hello, I'm Joan Kerr, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. This is part three of our program on art and the afterlife. And in this segment, we're joined by artist Erica Jetianang and by the curator of African Arts and Cultures at the Royal Ontario Museum, Sylvia Forney. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. So I would like to uh, have both of you converse a little bit about authorship and cultural authenticity. And um, Sylvia, as we know, Eric's fame is well established, not just as a coffin maker, but also of, uh, I don't mean that not just as an author, I mean not only (laughs) as a a coffin maker of the first order, but also as an independent artist whose work is shown in galleries and is uh, pursued by private collectors. is the cultural authenticity of an object like this coffin, the one we have in our room, altered in any way when it's presented in a purely artistic context as opposed to a funeral ceremony where mourners see the work as layered with personal meanings? Well, that's an interesting question. And I think what's interesting is why are we asking these questions? And, you know, it really seems like many times when we talk about African art, we continue to carry with us a whole load of categories that were really created by the market and by scholars in the West that often have nothing to do with the process of making and what African art was and has been for centuries. So it it is always interesting that this idea of authenticity comes uh, across or has been a very defining element of African art. And I find that Eric's work and Eric's life somehow voids this category of its meaning and shows how fictitious sometimes it is to impose these categories on the arts of others. And I actually was thinking about this when um, I saw a segment of a documentary that is being shot here at the University of Iowa in which Eric says, uh, I do not want to limit myself to only being a coffin maker or a carpenter. 
I'm moving the story. So Eric, I would like to start talking to you a little bit about really your practice and how you define yourself and what inspired you to experiment in different ways while drawing on this art form and skill and ability that you learned growing up in your family and how your recent practice, Eric and I met the first time in 2009, so I've somehow been following Eric's artistic trajectory from a time in which most of your activity was mm -hmm. in the workshop yeah. in Teshi to the time in which more and more you've become an international artist. So, you know, what inspired you to take on this trajectory and what were, what were you thinking? And how how did this come about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, I took over the shop in 2005. I, I started working with my dad. And, of course, before then, I, I don't know if any of the coffin makers has ever been out, out, out of Ghana to, you know, talk about their work. But what I, I know was I, I knew my grandfather was invited, let's say like in the 90s, and he, he refused the offer. I mean, he has his own reason for refusing the offer. So what actually happens is when these coffins goes abroad, there is nobody to tell the stories of the coffins. So they either end up in a museum with... I mean, with the name Ghana Coffin, with, you know, like, no proper artist name. Um, there was um, an artist by name Namjoon Park who actually used uh, my grandfather's piece, an airplane coffin, as part of his, um, his artwork. And um, after the show, I mean, he named the piece, I mean, instead of giving credit to the coffin maker or the artist who made the coffin, he said Ghana Coffin. And I was actually not happy about that. So one of my goals was, you know, to make a follow-up anywhere my coffins go. Or, and then also to trace where my grandfather's coffins are and, you know, bring the story to the people, you know, and then meet the people directly. In the course of doing that, I mean, once you are here, you need to be doing something. You don't have to sit and wait. And already back home, people were commissioning coffin, bringing them here, not for burials, but for galleries and museums. So when you are here, once I'm here, I have to find a way. So basically, I would say back home, I was already considered as an artist. But locally, people would call me a carpenter or a coffin maker. So once I get here, and then also, like I said, I love working with students, and it is through the students I sort of kind of learn a lot of stories. I mean, and that was how I started to put, you know, like um, bring out the story of this um, bamboo bee, the um, fish, and then the firefly, and the gun. So that was how I sort of grew up, you know, like going into all these colleges and then meeting with the students and working with them, and then at the same time also learning from them too. Mm -hmm. yeah. What I find interesting also the way you work, you know, earlier when John was asking um, 
about your life. You said, you know, I live part in the United States, part in Ghana. Mm -hmm. And um, you're still very much, despite the fact that you're here uh, on a residency, you just opened your first solo show in the United States. So clearly being projected towards a career as a, as a contemporary African artist, as, as Corey was highlighting earlier, you're still very much connected to your workshop and to the activity of a coffee maker. Why is this important for you? Why, why keeping, if you want, these two type of activities across, you know, seven hours time zone difference and somehow different uh, settings going at the same time? I mean, these coffins are so important to my people, and you know, I mean, the Kanekwe name is already there. So if people actually want a coffin, they would still go to the shop, and you know, making it easy for the people in Kumasi. That was why I did move my shop, and then also getting to this platform, I sort of have you know the possibility of putting, a, a, I mean, a huge respect to my profession, being a coffin maker back home. I would, um, I remember growing up, I, I went to an orphanage, and the reason I went there was most of the kids in the orphanage all the time expect to be given something. I mean, like in monetary terms or in, you know, clothing or food. So I went there to share with them my art. I mean, you know, let us build something, let us you know, work with wood. But my offer was rejected because they thought I was a coffin maker. And, you know, the children are not supposed to be working around coffins or something. So I had to come back, work on, on myself, you know, build myself up. I mean, they would still call me a coffin maker back home, but at the same time, I mean, they would see the reputation I've built for myself, and that would permit me to get into, you know, the lives of these children and let them understand what they can do with their hands. Yeah. Good. So I really have a very huge connection back home and I only don't want to limit myself to only building the coffins, but also being in the classroom to share with the kids. And I know you've been to Ghana a number of times and you've seen, you know, how furniture has disappeared. I mean, nobody is like, buying locally made um, wood stuffs. And, you know, I, I mean, getting wood also is not easy. But I think there is something that stays, and that is building the coffin. So we have to make it stay. If I live here fully time, I mean, I know some people are doing, doing that already, but I still have to be there to help them make it. Yeah. That's great. And what changes for you in, in your creative practice, in the way you approach the making of a piece, uh, when you're doing it locally for a family that it's there to commission a coffin, or when you're doing it, let's say, in Iowa, in the wood shop of the museum? OK, so in both ways, I try as much as possible to make the decision on what I build. And um, I mean, if you give the family the chance, they would stick to whatever that has been made all the time. So let's say like a cocoa farmer passes away and the family comes, they would still want a cocoa farmer. Uh, I mean, a cocoa pot for you know the deceased person. But being an artist, I have to stand firmly and let them understand we could do something and not only limit ourselves to building the cocoa, 
So in this case, I could, you know, like build, you know, one of the tools which has never been done before. I mean, for the cocoa farmer, um, there was um, this um, woman who travels all the way to Burkina to bring tomatoes, and she passes away. We've made like 10 or 20 tomatoes, I mean, coffin-shaped. <laughs> so they came in, and I said to them, you know, I want a photo of, you know, like the box filled with tomatoes. And through that, I built something, you know, through the picture they sent to me. And that was unique. And now, I mean, a lot, a lot of people are doing the same thing. Um, <laughs> When I meet people like Corey also, I, I still, you know, try to, you know, make the decision, but also I hear from them what they, are, they have in mind before taking decisions. So in both ways, I try to make my voice, I mean, heard louder. Okay. Yeah. And a flip side of this, I know, I mean, I've seen you work in Ghana and you work in a workshop. And so the making of a piece is, yes, part, you, you're the master of the workshop, so you're definitely leading. But oftentimes, I remember you guys gathering and trying mm -hmm. to find a solution, yes. like the first tomato you built. Yeah. How do you build a coffin in the shape of a tomato? It's not necessarily, lot, you know, it's not obvious. You know, yeah. It takes a lot of thinking, and also part of what Isabel was highlighting, thinking three-dimensionally and, and doing it without sketching or maybe sketching, but without, you know, the technological tools that people would use in, in, in the West. So there is a very collaborative aspect of the making mm -hmm. that it's not necessarily present in your activity as a solo artist. artist yeah. So how does this shape and transform the way you go about making things and, and which way is most satisfying for you and why? So again, that's what makes, takes much more time when I'm working here. So I work alone here, so I have to do all the, I mean, the physical job. And then at the same time, I have to do the whole thinking also on how to build. And um, back home, I mean, if, you know, we don't understand something, at least one of the apprentices could show up and, you know, like bring an idea and we could figure out how that works. So we could work within a week to build this or, you know, like a couple of days to build this. But once I'm here, I mean, I work alone, so I wouldn't say a week, but I would say like three weeks or a month. So it's just a time issue. Yes. Okay. Yes. And sometimes, I mean, I mean, my dad is still around and that's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one thing that helps a lot. I mean, um, I speak on phone with him and, you know, kind of ask for advice and stuff. Yeah. That's good. Um... Another question that is a bit connected also to the title of this series and um, to the interest of um, what a colleague of ours and friend of ours, Roberto Bonetti, has also been working on in looking at your practice and your career, which is the role of social media and the internet mm -hmm. in projecting your career on an international level. Yeah. Can you? Talked a little bit about how and why you introduce uh, your Facebook page, you got a Wikipedia page, and, and how this transformed the way your career has evolved. Yeah, so the first time I was introduced to the internet was in 1998 by a friend. Um, 
so in in the year 2000 i went to the internet cafe you know trying to learn something so i went on yahoo and then i typed my name you know like erica jitianan and there was like a topic that showed up you know about somebody i met in the shop and you know i told him the story of you know how the coffins were started and stuff so i was like you know <laughs> like i was so happy you know i was <laughs> awake and i i said wow so i can go really far i <laughs> i mean i i i joined the shop fully time i would say from 2002 while i was in my senior high school working with them like um sort of part time full time and in 2005 i took over the shop after my senior high school so i was working with my dad and i still don't have any connection with the internet but i knew something was there so i kept on speaking with friends who shows up who showed up in the shop and then whenever i tell them the story i also tell them about you know the internet and stuff until in 2008 um a friend um jamisha rose offered to help me build a website so he he sort of interviewed all the guys in the shop and you know he put everything to pen and pen and book and um upon building the website we realized i mean a friend also suggested the wikipedia so now we have the wikipedia in english and then we have the website so any friend who showed who shows up in the in the shop after speaking with them especially when they are journalists or you know i sort of speak with them and they would translate my wikipedia in various languages and all of the sudden i mean everything started to grow i mean i would i got an offer from no I, an invite for the first time um in 2009 i did this commercial for coca-cola in spain and this was shown in 2009 in on spanish tv for a whole year and that allow them to you know give me a visa to travel to europe i mean to make a follow up to my coffins yeah because any time i apply i am qualified to like you know you know escape you know not not go and do the writing and then you know escape and stay there that was the idea so any time i apply they refuse but through the commercial they gave me the 3 months visa so i went to spain italy belgium holland just making a follow up on the coffins and um and i came back home and right after coming back i got another invite to um a festival in um senegal so i went to senegal also for two weeks and then back and then i got a very strange email and the guy said hey eric um um we want five we want all your coffins and i'm like <laughs> i don't have all the coffins i mean tell me what you want so they said we want five coffins and i i said okay tell me the designs and you know we could figure something out and he said they were from russia so i said i mean my friend helped me and we realized i mean it's it's not easy to take you know exotic wood to russia so we suggested to them oh maybe i could come to russia not thinking of you know russia so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah so I mean they said hey you can come I mean we want you here <laughs> so then I have to you know make a research and know you know like what's going on and actually it was a crematorium so um 
they wanted me to stay for like um, six weeks to build, you know, coffins in the crematorium and, you know, speak with people. I was there. It was a good time. It, w it was cold. Good time. So, you know, I made all these connections through, you know, this Wikipedia. And that was the same way I think Corey also found me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's, it's really interesting to see how these things really shape and transform uh, and really do have potential to also move beyond what you were saying earlier, the idea of a Ghana coffin or a Ga coffin to a Kanekwe coffin or an Erika Anang coffin. So really creating this idea of authorship and ownership. And... Um, Maybe the last topic I want to touch upon is something that we started discussing in the gallery when, when I saw the exhibition in October. And I was looking at the Mamiwata quote-unquote coffin, but I would also say the Mamiwata sculpture. And, uh, and I was thinking as you evolve and, and continue to grow your practice internationally, uh, also, m many of the slides that Corey was showing before, like the fish or the bee, or increasingly your creativity and ideas are moving beyond the functionality of the coffin itself. Yet, you continue to call your work coffin. And why is that? And why is this connection important? And yeah, what, what, is, <laughs> what is the meaning for you of continuing to call these works, these artworks, coffins? Um, so most of what I still talk about is still related to death. That's what I would say. Something like the gun talks about death. I mean, something like the, um, the fish, it's, it's still about death. I mean, how we, we, though it's talking about waste, but it's also about death. Um, I mean, the bumblebee and the firefly, the disappearance, so it's still related to death. So I would say that's why I'm still stick to that. But um, with the uh, Mami Water, it wasn't a piece that I actually chose myself. I mean, we actually talked about that, um, and it was commissioned by the education department. So... Um, we had two options. Either we build a dragon or we build the mummy water. So he finally, I mean, we finally arrived at building the mummy water. And he saw my work before, you know, making a decision on requesting for one. So if I should build something without opening, it doesn't look like my work, I would say. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's it's going to be like um, a totally different thing to to him, and you know I don't want to surprise him. I mean, maybe I should have to ask him in the beginning before you know deciding to open that or not. But I. It but wasn't. you you could conceive of building a sculpture without a door um, in certain cases, maybe. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, you know, Eric, I'd like to ask you, I, I read an interview that you had done at Wisconsin, at, at Madison, and um, I, I, among the uh, topics for your work uh, was Black Lives Matter. You said that you might like to create a piece yeah. uh, with, that would refer to this movement. Yeah. Tell us about your interest in that. 
So, I mean, the piece was the one I built, the gun, the gun that I built. So we had a couple of the Black Lives Matters there. And then we had a ceremony and then we broke the gun into two. Now we're planning on um, um, going on a parade because um, Tony Robinson, I mean, he's been like, um, they go on a parade every year mm -hmm. for this little mm -hmm. guy who was shot on yeah. Williamson Street. So I'm still in touch with them and mm -hmm. we figuring out how we could, you know, parade on the streets with the gun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you uh, intend to stay at uh, Madison for some period of time? Have you, is um, this kind of a permanent second so home So I for would you? say it's like a second home. Yeah. Maybe a first home yeah. or a second home. Yeah. 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 Uh, and you're used to the winter. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. Sylvia, tell us a little bit about your work with the museum in uh, Ontario. Well, I am. I have a similar job to Corey's, uh, but I work in a much bigger, larger uh, institution because it's a big encyclopedic museum. But um, and so I guess really the reason why. I met Eric in 2009, which was the beginning of my tenure there, was to introduce in the collection, uh, really problematize the sense of African art as a primitive thing, quote mm -hmm. unquote, mm -hmm. or uh, complicate the idea of African art by really showing uh, contemporary practices that are both artistic and culturally meaningful. And, and that was, you know, the first I didn't have, I don't have in uh, the collection in Toronto pieces comparable to the Mamiwata or the Bee or, you know, works that really go more in the direction of creative sculptural work. But what I commissioned then was a uh, fish because I asked Eric, what is the coffin that people buy the most now? Mm -hmm. And it was a fish, and he was making four fish at the same time. And the other piece that I commissioned by another famous workshop, uh, the Pajot workshop, was a Mercedes-Benz, mm -hmm. somehow as a, as a reference and a, qu a quote of the Magicien de la Terre exhibition in which Kanekwe had uh, a white Mercedes-Benz, and then Pajot also went on to um, exhibit uh, also in uh, Africa Remix that was done the year later in New York. There was a Mercedes-Benz. So it's kind of an iconic piece in African art, contemporary African art history. Mm -hmm. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's, I'm very interested in these mm -hmm. intersections and complications, mm -hmm. yeah. So we have had uh, a few occasions to hear the name of your grandfather. Maybe you can tell us who Kanekwe was. Yeah, so Kanekwe was born in 1922, passed, passed away in... Um, he was... Um, a, he became baptized in 1990 and passed away in 1992. Um, he was succeeded by two of his children. That's Sidi, my dad, and um, Soa, Benjamin Soa who also passed away in the year 2000. So it was actually left with only my dad in the shop. And um, um, I sort of joined him in the shop to work. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't know, that's it, means, it means a lot to continue yeah. the tradition of your yeah. grandfather. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Well, it's a huge pleasure for us to have had you here tonight. Yeah. You too, Sylvia yeah. Forney, Eric Ajete Anang. Thank you very, very yeah, much. And uh, I thank all of you who joined us here in the audience and everyone listening. Um, all World Canvas programs are available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website. Our next World Canvas is February 22nd here in this room, again at 5.30. And that program will be a preview of a series of events that will be happening in early March. The Global Forum on the topic Against Amnesia, Archives, Evidence, and Social Justice. And it'll be a very interesting program. I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you very much for being here, and good night.